This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Yuzhe Zhu, author of Heritage Tourism. Hello, how are you doing today? Hi, thank you, Deidre. This is uh, my honor to be here and, uh, sh- and talk with you and share my new book. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. Um, so my name is Yujie, and uh, I'm a um, senior lecturer at the Center for Heritage and Museum Studies at Australia National University. So I'm in Australia. And I was trained as an anthropologist and working on and political issues of heritage and tourism, uh, which is exactly the, the theme of this book. Um, I have a long-term interest in tourism, personally, um, that I like traveling and explore how things work in different parts of the world. I'm particularly interested in and how different kinds of people meet and exchange, um, which happens a lot in, in tourism. Of course, um, it became a bit difficult these days. Um, and also, I like to explore a bit about how tourism changed the world and changed um, ourselves and relationship with the world. And that's probably the start of, of this book. Now, can you tell the audience, what is heritage tourism? Sure. Um, Defining heritage tourism is not an easy task uh, because both terms heritage and tourism are very complex concepts that have been explored by all sorts of different disciplines, including sociology, anthropology, history, geography, cultural studies, political science, and also management and marketing. And each of them bring particular research methods and theories. Uh, For the purpose of this book, I try to make it simple. So it's a kind of tourism experience related to all sorts of culture, historical um, sites and practice. But despite the complexity of the definition, the purpose of the book is to show that heritage tourism is not simply an economic or consumption phenomenon, which contribute to global and local economy. But my point is it has some social and political consequence on society 
and also to the world, because there are some various kind of political and ethical issues and challenges that we need to be aware of. So we need to take them into consideration uh, for better future. Now, that's going to begin our next question, because we're thinking about the beginning of tourism. Can you tell us about the early travelers to Europe? What did they learn and who were these travelers? Sure. Um, The history of heritage tourism, particularly in Europe, can trace back to the grand tour of wealthy European elites in the 17th century. So in that period, the son of aristocrats and gentry was sent on extended tour of Europe to visit the remains of antiquities. So they are, they are very young people, uh, mainly men, or, or sometimes they also have uh, ladies. The Grand Tour is the earliest example of the culture as opposite to the religious spiritual tour in Europe. And the itinerary often included a travel route in Western Europe, including visits to Paris, Milan, Venice, Florence, Rome, and then later they traveled back to the UK. These tours were mainly for education purpose. So these people would learn European language, arts, history, and architecture during the traveling and enjoying the scenery um, when they're taking a break in the rural areas. So such educational trips were often very expensive. That's why it's, it was very exclusive to this European upper middle class. Now, tell us about the early travelers from China to Japan. Who were they? Right. Um, So when I talk about um, um, history of heritage tourism, I'm trying to explore also the other part of the world, including um, not only in, in Europe, but also other regions of the world, including, for instance, countries like China and Japan. And so, in for instance, the early form of travel in Japan were populated by officials, uh, literates, and intellectuals. Um, and the, the people we're talking about, for instance, the diplomatic and trade travel, can be traced back to 7th century, when the imperial Japanese courts were sent to, uh, their royal family members and monks to China, Korea, and India to advance their culture, economy, and science. So those people traveled to China, and some people from Chinese officials also go to Japan, went to Japan for diplomatic, trade, and culture exchange purpose. Um, and, but this form of tourism, diplomatic tourism, was became less frequent, especially in, uh, in the 17th century and 18th century, because both countries was excluded for isolation policies. And later in the 19th century, and gradually this kind of diplomatic or ex- trade travel became more frequent, when these countries became become gradually opening to the foreigners. Now, when did heritage tourism become popular? Yeah, um, so heritage tourism became popular again in Europe uh, since the early 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution originated from the UK um, had dramatically changed the landscape of travel. For instance, the invention of ships, stream trains, photographs, and establishment of rail networks um, have stimulated middle class to travel more easily and frequently. Um, for instance, in 1865, English businessman Thomas Cook established one of the first tourism agencies 
and studied the area of mass tourism. As the father of the modern travel agents and tour operations, Cook of, offers ships and train-based tours. Um, he tested his first program in Italy and later expanded that to the whole Europe. The itineraries of his package tour were mainly heritage-based, such as a visit to the Great, Great Pyramids in Egypt. His inventions, such as tourism currencies, travel coupon, and holiday train tickets, which was now often used now, significantly raised the public interest in this kind of public culture tourism. And following on from Cook's initiatives, heritage tourism grew very quickly during the 19th century. And tourism became increasingly democratized as it became cheaper to travel and and also easy for for people to access into different public space. As a consequence of this economic, political, and social change, heritage tourism can represent sometimes serve national policies, especially during the late 19th century, and, and that the state is using tourism to spread their influence to the international audience. For instance, an image of a beautiful and peaceful Italy, Italy was created to serve the needs of the arrival generated by the Cook's mass tourism in the mid-19th century. So now we still have that kind of legacy of the image of Italy after that. Now, since World War II, how has this tourism changed? Yeah, there's a lot of change after the Second after War, particularly Second World War. Um, there's a lot of factors has shaped that kind of development of tourism after Second World War. In Europe, tourism is seen as a powerful tool for nation states to use it in, in development strategies for social and economic recovery after war. For instance, in the US and the UK, thanks to the mass development of capitalism, there has been a dramatic growth in heritage tourism, which had led to idea of preservation and visitation to heritage sites. And government have encouraged the public to visit these heritage sites um, to show uh, the glories of the past and also to show the beautiful nature nature landscape uh, of the state. And this not only include Europe, but also in other regions of the world. For instance, Australia also developed its visions of the Grand Tour. So a copy from Europe, they developed sites such as the Sydney Opera House, the Great Barrier Reef, war memorials, and other cultural institutions of each state to commemorate the history of the land and the country. And nowadays, um, apparently before the pandemic, tourism and its related sectors are also considered one of the world's largest industry in terms of consumer expenditure and local employment. And much of the growth is attributed to technology, art craft, highway system, and public transportation. Tourism destinations have been largely expanded from um, limited places in early periods to now very different kinds of isolated countries in the world. In the meantime, um, from the public perspective, it, the tourism not only just uh, a kind of um, habit for the, the up, up high middle class, but also ordinary people, in, including the working class, um, they also have the luxury to travel. The main reason is they now have less hours to work, much time for leisure, and more income to experience, experience and see things outside of their small society. 
So all of these factors trigger the development of heritage tourism around the world. Now, in your book, you talked about the global heritage fever. Can you describe this in regards to social change? Sure. So by global heritage fever, I mean heritage has become an international cultural movement, uh, especially in the recent um, 40, 50 years. This can trace back to Europe, particularly after the war in 70s, 60s, when policies of national industry restructuring resulted in the closure of many mass industrial factories. And, and this also leads to a boom in the construction of industrial museums and industrial heritage sites, such as in UK, Germany, and France. And that creates a, a global a, a heritage fever in Europe. And nowadays, the current global heritage fever also reflects a common need for preservation and cultural protection, which due to the rapid social change driven by capitalism and sometimes new liberalism. Such kinds of heritage fever is a response towards the rapid change of the society due to development of technology, high-level industrialization, or more broadly, modernity. One presentation of such global heritage fever is the development of recognition of heritage globally. So we know that since 1972, UNESCO has developed an instrument to recognize the value of um, over thousands of world heritage items and sites um, through different kind of lists and, and recognition mechanism with the participation of 167 state parties around the world. While their intention was not to create just a tick-up box list right, for tourists, however, World Heritage Sites has become a must-see symbolic attraction in cultural tools, itineraries, tool operators, and tourism board marketing strategies. So now we see that people like to use that heritage, World Heritage listing as, as a key kind of list for, uh, for travel. Now, tell us about the power imbalance between the patrons and host cultural performances. Sure. Um, that relates to the question about the power imbalance uh, that in, which was emerged and created by the um, heritage tourism industry. And I believe there are different layers of power imbalance here. The first power imbalance is the relationship between tourists and the local communities. Tourists have a particular way of looking at different things when they're traveling, and which scholars call it tourist gates. Such particular way of looking is often shaped by certain stereotypes, their knowledge, and their expectations, um, which has been created by the public media, or for instance, such as Lonely Planet Travel Advisor, when we uh, see this information before our travel. And that particular tourist gaze become even stronger in tourism destination of post-colonial areas, because some foreigner visitors might still view these local communities, especially those local indigenous communities, through their stereotypical gaze as a legacy of colonialism and cultural imperialism. Such gaze will shape the way of their behavior, their attitude, and their relationship with local communities. So this is the case of ethnic tourism in China, for instance, that ethnic minority are viewed as the exotic, the attractive, sometimes even the barbarian, uh, um, for the tourism industry. 
The second power imbalance is, uh, sorry, is between the large tourism enterprise and the small local enterprise and the local communities, uh, local communities. Um, we saw that tourism can create a lot of in local employment. However, much of the benefit invested in uh, the tourism industry actually being gained not by the local community, by those international tourism companies, because they have more power, more experience and marketing strategies. Um, the issue here is not only about the degree to which the local community have become involved in the tourism business. Instead, the key issue in the power relationship is about decision-making and management. The dominance of international enterprise in tourism development, especially in those developing countries, often leads to the exploration of those indigenous communities as low-level laborers. So we see, for instance, in East Africa, South Pacific Islands, and the Caribbean areas, there exists a lack of indigenous involvement in the finance and the management. Even worse, sometimes the development of tourism industries at heritage sites sometimes can legitimize the redistribution of land and resources, resulting in a displacement and gentrification of certain areas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So what type of jobs does this tourism lead to? Yeah, sure. Um, as I just mentioned that, um, tourism can create different kinds of jobs. Um, some are more directly connected with tourism service, such as tourism operators, tour guides, performers, site managers, while others are associated with a broader tourism development at the destination sites, such as maybe souvenir shops owners, restaurants owners, taxi drivers, hotel managers, and cleaners. So there are different kinds of jobs uh, around tourism industry can be developed. And uh, often in some areas, for instance, in, in especially in island areas, this can occupy the whole job market in, in, in the local site. Tell us about the term authenticity in heritage tourism. What does that mean? Yeah, so the notion of Authenticity uh, is primarily used to describe certain tourist motivation to search for something as real while traveling. So one of the examples could be when we are traveling to other countries, we might think, for instance, street food hmm, might be better than those in the fancy restaurants. However, the interesting part of the idea is that people have different kinds of criteria of authenticity. So why some people refer to the actual reality of something and they call it authentic, while other people might not be happy about that actual reality or real. But some people are more interested in something staged or packaged to make you f- make it feel real. So this is what Dean McKenna called staged authentic experience for tourists. For those people, experience 
uh, matters more than those objects and scientific evidence. And as a consequence of this authenticity seeking, tourism operators and service providers have responded to stage and authentic experience to match the tourist expectation and desires. So as a result, we can see, for instance, heritage sites become more consumable products to enhance the tourist experience. Culture festivals, traditionally exclusive for local communities, and now become commercialized for the tourism purpose uh, and sell to the and sell to the public. It seems that commercialization may be decreased the, decreasing the value of cultural heritage that we often think about in that way, but the reality is not that simple. Stage tourism event can also create new meanings for both tourists and local communi- communities. My early work, for instance, has shown that the revised and staged cultural products, such as romanticized rituals, short-term cultural performance, and even wedding package, can offer sacred experience for the tourist and making people feel it is real. Such sense of authenticity, which I call performative authenticity, can also refer to their own identity and sense of belonging. I have discussed that in this issue in my early book, Heritage and Romantic Consumption in China. So if people are interested, feel free to check out that in another book podcast with New Book Network. Now, you talked about the democratic approach to heritage tourism. What Mm. does this mean to the international organizations and experts? Yes, Um, that's raised to the key issue of the book. The democratic approach, I mean, in the book shows that heritage tourism should not be developed and owned only by international organizations, large enterprise, social elites and experts, but should be co-created by all relevant stakeholders especially including those local communities and marginal groups like elders, women, and and even children. The idea of co-creation or co-production is a key message of this study, that heritage tourism is not simply a consumption, leisure, or economic instrument for the local government. It's an issue of social justice that relates to equity and inclusiveness. Especially when heritage sites deal with those difficult paths, such as slavery and colonial heritage, a democratic approach of heritage tourism can allow more voices to be included for the public and make it possible to, to shift that heritage tourism, make it become a meaningful channel for public education and a social reflection on the reality. What is the cultural landscape in indigenous tourism? Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's one of the examples of uh, which I call democratic approach to heritage tourism. So the original idea of heritage is often driven by the Western ideas that divide heritage between culture and nature. So we often call cultural heritage and nature heritage. The idea of cultural landscape is an approach to move beyond that simple binary because such binary misrecognized the complexity of indigenous values and the relationship between those indigenous custodians and their country. So to adopt a concept of uh, cultural landscape, the indigenous community's role in heritage tourism management and policymaking can be recognized. A good, good example is Uruluu in Australia here. Um, 
that uh, previously uh, was called uh, as known as Iron Rock, that was branded as a sacred landscape and uh, attracted over 35,000 non-Australian visitors per year. Many tourists, mostly Western tourists, climb the mountain as part of their tour experience. Uh, but this act has been discouraged by the local Anunu community since the 1980s because they recognize that um, this mountain and this route is important for their ancestors. So in the 1990s, within the cultural landscape framework, the local communities adopt an idea of please don't climb um, the program. They believe that this is key crucial uh, values for the local countries. And they adopt the idea of chukupa, which in English means dream time, which refers to the foundation of the life and society of the animal people. Chukupa, dream time, illustrates the relationship between human, animals, plants, and the environment, and the relationship between the past, present, and the methods for maintaining their relationship with the future. So such, such kind of landscape ontology for animal people in, in here, um, it now forms the basis for the park and heritage tourism management. And as a result of this framework, the number of climbers has been declined significantly. And since October 2019, climbing is now banned. And most importantly, the program involved cultural awareness of indigenous values in the public in the country. Now, you use the term echo museums. What are they and how do they connect to the community? Echo museums is another example of the democratic approach of heritage tourism. Um, so traditionally, we know that museums were collection-focused, building-based institutions, so we often visit museums in a building. In contrast to those narrow focus on museums, the new museology advocate more democratized the role of museums within society. So instead of building a collection-centered and a building-centered idea of museum, the Eco Museum are community-based museum or heritage project that support sustainable development of local community. Such rep- definition rep- rep- represents a shift from so-called culture elitism of the few experts to a more democratic approach of cultural heritage owned by the community. So the idea of Eco Museum means the whole community is the museum itself. Nowadays, more than 400 eco-museums exist worldwide. Um, that shows the glow, growing importance in representing community in cultural heritage tourism. And unlike the action of external tourism operators, eco-museums provide local communities with a solid platform to develop their own business. So um, created by local traditional and indigenous communities, eco-museum tourism initiative aim to use local business activities to recognize and protect their culture and nature resources. Profits should not be owned, uh, not only the purpose of such tourism activity. Instead, it is about preservation and recognizing the sense of the place and landscape and history of the people who live there. So in this sense, such kind of eco-museum or community tourism is not just simple product, but a process to align with eco-museum development. Now, how can heritage tourism 
develop? How can it be developed to create a better future? Yeah, um, this is refers to a, a central argument of my book, and I'm very glad you asked this question. I would like to expand a bit time on this. Um, I do hope that heritage tourism can be developed not simply a global economic instrument, but a pl- public education platform and to contribute to, to a society in more meaningful ways. I illustrate this point by showing various levels of goals that heritage tourism can achieve, which I call in the book the ladder of heritage interpretation. In the first ladder, the step of the ladder, heritage interpretation contributes to visitor entertainment and consumption. So this is the first ladder that in which heritage tourism serves simply hedonistic pleasure making. It's a bit like when we are visiting theme parks and Disneyland for fun. The second step of the ladder is about knowledge and fact sharing. In this step, um, heritage tourism is, is associated with official uh, information made by experts and professionals. Such type of information is presented as factual, unemotional, and objective. We often see this information at national parks, museums, and monuments. The third step of heritage interpretation offers a deeper level of understanding and recognition. And this, this stage provides answers to why and how certain historical level events took place. And such position allows people to recognize and understand those events' meanings from different range of voices. The issues of recognition in heritage tourism is particularly important to visitors when their families have personal connection with those sites. And the idea of recognition guides people to think and critical reflection. The fourth step of heritage interpretation is about imagination and reflection. Unlike the previous stage that concerns only facts or knowledge, this step enables visitors to traverse the boundaries between heritage and memory as that often involve imagination and reflection. So instead of only giving truth, this form of heritage tourism highlights the emotional connection between the visitor and the sites. It allows narrative and effects that make, pe- make people feel rather than understand. Narrative and stories are one of the key strategies in, in such kind of uh, more emotional uh, levels of heritage interpretation. Storytelling and oral history is a powerful way to connect people to those places and offering possibilities of imaginations to transcend the present to the past and future. So instead of being driven by experts, this kind of oral history storytelling um, can include local communities and elders and women to talk about their own stories to the public. The last step presents heritage tourism with an opportunity for healing, peace building, and even sometimes reconciliation. This is particularly relevant to those dark heritage sites where there are wars or trauma stories has been happened. So this kind of heritage tourism could potentially be used as a spiritual space for healing, especially for those people and family members who experienced cultural trauma or loss in the past. Such visits have the potential for reconciliation between divided societies or reducing conflicts between different groups. Of course, the five-step ladder is a simplification, but I want using these ladders 
to illustrate a graduation of what heritage tourism can do for a better future. Knowing this graduation make it possible for all of the stakeholders to clarify their own goals um, which, and, and in their own local condition. Of course, I also understand these goals are not easy because it requires different kinds of dialogues and collaborations. So for instance, to achieve healing and reconciliation at dark heritage sites, I believe we can include, for instance, these questions in the design for heritage tourism for, for, to guide people for critical thinking and openly discuss. Questions can include, how did events occur? How have people suffered? Who are the winners and the losers? How does such injustice occurred? What are the consequences of that event? And how have these issues been recognized and settled? And more importantly, how can we learn from the past to create a better future without making the similar mistakes? I believe the last question is the most important one for us. And I hope heritage tourism can offer us an open and more inclusive dialogue so tourists can participate in this discussion, which is a bit like tutorials in the university's space. Now, what message do you want the reader to leave with after they finish your book? Sure, so I think now we are in a very um, critical moment because the COVID-19 pandemic transferred the world into a new normal. We also see clearly the world is experiencing a temporary but possibly long-term process of deglobalization. So as a result of travel restriction, where, where I see some countries are gradually opening now, but physical barriers between countries and locals are still, still developing. And regardless of political positions, either liberal or conservative, national authorities of different nation states have used effective mechanisms to control political and economic resources for security and domestic stability. And so we see national states became more a bit more defensive uh, as ops to cooperative in engaging with nature and culture disaster on a global stage. And we also see some countries now using heritage tourism for social and economic recovery. Some countries doing better than others. I believe this is a critical moment for us to understand and rethinking these political and ethical issues of heritage tourism. This means we need probably we need to slow down a bit and develop some more responsible instruments to support small business and local communities for a better future. Now the world has some more critical issues that require all of us to consider. For instance, how heritage tourism incorporates climate change in its development and design. How we can use digital technologies to facilitate tourism industry while still offering tourist authentic cultural experience. How heritage tourism can achieve decolonization in some post-colonial areas. And more general, how can we rebuild social trust after, after such a long time social distancing and separation? These are very challenging, but very important question. I believe we need to continue to discuss on this and reflect on these issues. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you're going to be working on? Sure, thank you, Dira. Um, I'm currently working on two new projects. Um, one is a more historic project, which on how heritage shaped uh, Chinese ancient civilization. 
And the other one is a more contemporary broad project um, uh, looking at how heritage and museum space can function as effective culture mechanism for peace and re- relationship building. They are related issues, which I think believe that it's also re- have a dialogue what is about what is current situation in the world. And I hope we, I, we can continue to discuss these issues in the future. Well, we're looking forward to both of your projects. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Dara. And uh, really my pleasure to be here with you.